We often delude ourselves into thinking that we're independent thinkers, completely, um, uh, uh, completely sort of thinking on our own. But really, we're shaped by the culture around us. If we think individualistically, because we live in an individualistic world, we think in terms of sort of materialism, a materialistic uh, worldview, because we are live, living in a materialistic worldview, uh, world. We think of, we read Genesis 1 and 2, things like that, in scientific terms, partly because we're so immersed in scientific worldview. Often, what we find good or beautiful, worthwhile, it's really shaped by the culture around us. But when Jesus preached this Sermon on the Mount 2,000 years ago, he was setting us apart. He was saying, actually, just don't go just along with the culture. You are part of the culture, but you shouldn't be completely shaped by it. Be shaped by me and my words, for you are my people. You should live in this world differently because you live by different laws. And Jesus stood and gives the deeper law to all of us. In an angry world, Jesus told us that anger was murder. In a world with, uh, filled with broken relationships, Jesus said we should make reconciliation our priority. Where pornography is one of the biggest industries on the internet and marketing departments openly sell sex, Jesus says don't even think a lustful thought. And today, we'll talk about two more areas that Jesus addresses. Jesus told us uh, where Jesus tells us to go against the culture in our marriage and in our speech. It's a well-known fact that in the U.S., half of marriages end up in divorce. And Hong Kong isn't immune. Uh, since 1991 to uh, 2016, in, within the span of 15 years, the divorce rate in Hong Kong doubled uh, from 1991 to 2016. Earlier this month, New York Times published a story about rise of prenuptial agreements among millennials. If you don't know what these are, prenups are agreements, legal documents that outline how the couples would split their assets in case of a divorce. Now, it usually was done for the ultra-rich to protect their assets, but now normal young people are going into their marriages, are going, are going uh, into their marriages saying, I will spend the rest of my life with you, but if things apart, if fall apart, this is what will happen. But then, the culture in which Jesus lived, in a way, wasn't all that different. Jesus summarizes what people were thinking in verse 31 of our passage. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. He was referring to how people interpreted the Old Testament command in Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 through 4, which reads, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house and so on. One school of thought led by Rabbi Hillel taught that anyone, anything could be considered indecent, including husband not being pleased with the wife's cooking or if she just gets tired of her plain looks, he could just write the certificate of divorce and divorce her. It likely only meant adultery because the indecent literally means nakedness. Uh, but that wasn't the popular view. In the first century, most Jewish people believed that divorce should be easy, that all that was required was the husband's consent. 
and writing the certificate of divorce, giving her back the dowry and her right to remarry. You see, even back then, many entered marriages thinking that actually, if things don't work out, then there is a way out. And against the culture, Jesus says, Jesus forbids all divorce except for sexual immorality. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. I think this isn't an easy passage to understand. So if you can turn to Matthew chapter 19, which is found on page 800 on the church Bibles. Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus teaches more on this subject of divorce. It's just a few lines in the Sermon on the Mount, but he gives a a, a deeper teaching in chapter 19. So this subject comes about because the Pharisees come and ask in verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? This is how Rabbi Hillel Uh, interpreted uh, the the law, any and every reason. And Jesus doesn't answer the question directly, but he quotes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 24. He says, God has made uh, uh, people male and female, and for this reason they will leave their, their, uh, their parents and then they will become one. They'll become one flesh, and it concludes in verse 6. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus' answer is that God, what, that God joins a husband and wife together as one when they get married. And that isn't something a person could annul, uh, just cancel out by writing a certificate of divorce. That reality still exists. The Pharisees believed that they caught him contradicting Moses. So they immediately reply in verse 7, So then why did Moses command that a man give his certificate, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? I hope you see the, how they twist God's words in Deuteronomy chapter 24. They asked, why did Moses command a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Moses does no such thing. This is a series of conditional clause. If a man marries a wife, a woman, and he writes a certificate of divorce, and if she leaves his wife, etc., etc., the whole thing was about how, if this happens, what should happen, and who she could remarry. God commands none to be divorced. But in this is an acknowledgement, though, right, that there is divorce. Acknowledgement that people will get divorced. So Jesus answers back in Matthew chapter 19, 8 through 9. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It was not this way from the beginning. Divorce was never God's will. It was never God's command. But God envisions divorce because of our sinfulness. And in case of divorce, God wants to protect the rights of women. Because in that culture, if they were just kicked out, the the, the women had no way of making a living. So God wanted to make sure that they were given the dowry back and the legal right to remarry so they could remarry afterwards if there was a divorce. But Jesus reminds them that God's will for a married couple has always been unity, always been oneness. He says that that should be the norm for the citizens of the kingdom of God. And people cite many reasons for divorce, money problems, lack of communication, 
constant arguing, lack of intimacy, lack of equality, lack of passion. And being in a bad marriage is much worse than being single. And I'm sure you know people who are struggling, maybe you are. You know people who are struggling with major marriage problems. And the culture's solution to the problem is then let go of your marriage. Settle the matter legally. Try to settle the matter amicably, nicely. Go your separate ways. But Jesus says, well, God has joined together. Let no one separate. If our marriages are difficult, we are to pray together, work on listening better, loving one another, working out our different issues by listening to God together because God has made them one. And that's not a reality that you can just raise. And that's what Jesus says. That's why Jesus says, if a husband or wife walks away from the marriage, you're causing the other person to commit adultery. And if you remarry, then you're committing adultery because even after a legal divorce, in God's eyes, they're still one. So those who remarry, who those who marry divorcees, commit adultery. I know this is really hard, harsh saying, and I think uh, I found Pastor Tim Keller really helpful in describing this. He says that the culture talks about divorce like it's putting on new clothes. Putting, you don't like what you see, you take it off and you put on a new one. No, divorce, he says, is more like amputation. It's like cutting off a part of your own body. Sometimes it's necessary, like sometimes amputation is, but it was never God's intention. It should only be considered after having made all other efforts to save it when there is no other option. And those of you who who have gone through divorce, I know there are some, you know how painful it is, no matter the circumstance, because what God has joined as one, it's difficult to take it apart. Jesus does famously give one exception, marital unfaithfulness. And some believe Jesus allows this exception because in the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, uh, you were, it was a capital offense. You would have been killed. So you're supposed to be, have been killed. So meaning that they, the other was uh, free to remarry. And there are arguably other cases that seems biblically permitted, like desert, uh, if, if, uh, if uh, the husband or wife leaves the spouse. But nowhere does Jesus command divorce. It's merely an accommodation to our sinfulness, recognition of our sinfulness. To pursue oneness in a difficult marriage is hard, but we are to stand out as salt and light in this world by working on our marriage to love each other, to listen to each other, to sacrifice for one another, that our marriages should reflect Christ's love for the church. And when we do, we're keeping vows that we've made to one another when we got married. Remember these words. In an Anglican service, we say, I take you to be my husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death us do part. But promises, these days seem uh, to not mean as much. Words in general don't seem to mean as much. And we've seen that most clearly, I think, in last year's U.S. election. People are so used to the idea that facts are spun, that it doesn't matter that anything is presented as truth, presented as facts. 
They go with their guts. So politicians uh, get away with lies. Since we live in a culture where no one trusts each other, everybody assumes that there is some level of lie that is going on. In this article, it says, some, people say that we live in a post-truth world. And perhaps not to the same degree once again, but Jesus, his days, had the same problem. We know that because people swore all the time. And you only swear when lying is the normal. The Bible seems to actually take oath-taking for granted. It's in the Bible. For example, in Leviticus 19.12, God says, Do not swear falsely by my name, so to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. In Numbers, when a man vows vows a vow to the Lord, he shall not break his word. The intention of these commands is that you should never break your vows. You should never break your word. You should say what you mean and do what you say. But even back then, the lawyers got to their work and Pharisees focused on how these vows are made. They focused on to whom and how they're made. They taught, for example, that some vows are more serious than other vows. Vows made to heaven, as we read in Sermon on the Mount, heaven is more important than the vows that are made to earth. And that's uh, more important than still uh, uh, vows that are made about Jerusalem or our own heads. Pinky swears, we think, are less serious than uh, blood oaths, right? Like people make blood oaths. Actually, maybe they don't anymore. But anyway, you you get what I'm saying. That we take these different vows as some more important than others, but are they? Is the question. And the shocking thing about what Jesus says is no, there should be no difference. For the Christian, there should be no degrees of truthfulness. If we go back to Pharisees' formula, everything had to do with God anyway. The heaven is uh, God's, uh, where God's throne is. The earth is his footstool. Jerusalem is his city. And the hairs on our own head, we don't have control. Only God controls. Our pinky belongs to God. Our blood belongs to God. We can't do anything about it. All of it is God's. And so God said, we live in his world. So take every statement that you make seriously. Be truthful in everything that you say. Pursue truth and integrity at all times. When we swear, when we say, I swear by this or whatever, what we're saying is normally, normally my words are not trustworthy. Normally I lie, but this time I really mean what I say. By swearing, we admit that we're very unreliable, that we're sinful. So Jesus says, don't swear. Live in, live in such a way that your yeses mean yes and no means no in verse 34. Live, say uh, things in such a way that actually you don't need to swear anymore. We should be the kinds of people who say what we mean and do what we say. And that would be truly countercultural too, wouldn't it? We all embellish, exaggerate, or lie for all sorts of different reasons. Sometimes we lie, we embellish to be liked. Sometimes we do it in our workplaces to make a sale, to escape blame. Sometimes lying is much easier. It's just much easier, in, especially in this save, face-saving culture like Hong Kong. But we're called to be different. 
were to be salt and light of the world. And wouldn't it be refreshing if politicians spoke the whole truth? Right? Not half-truth, not bent truth, but, and Christians, Christian politicians should stand out that way. Wouldn't you stand out in your workplaces if your yes is meant yes and no is meant no? Wouldn't it be great if your friends knew that you, they'd never have to make you swear by anything? They'd never have to say, do, do you really mean that? Because you always mean what you say. And in many ways, it will be great and we should stand out with our integrity and honesty, but also be prepared to face the consequences as well. Pursuing integrity means that sometimes we won't be liked. Saying truth sometimes hurts. We might lose our clients or not be able to make that sale, have to face the blame for the things that we've done, things that we don't really want to do, we might have to do because we said that we are going to do. Sometimes we might lose face because of it. Look, I know a family um, who signed a contract to sell their house. And after they signed the initial contract, another offer came in. And it was like ludicrously more than what they were first offered. Ludicrous, I mean, it's not just tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars, but millions of dollars more. So they wanted to, but they wanted to honor their original agreement. And so, I mean, you know, they could have just walked away, pay the forfeiture, uh, and made millions more dollars but they wanted to honor their original words. So they went to their original, uh, the, the people who made the original offer and told them exactly what had happened. In the end, they sold to the original uh, offer, uh, the, the, the party, original party, at a much lower price than they could have gotten because they wanted to honor their words, uh, the original agreement. And keeping our words sometimes will mean losing millions. It's hard to pursue integrity in this world. But even as we live in this world, we're kingdom people. We're, God, we're people whom God, Jesus, has called out from this world to live differently. So we are to let our yeses be yes and no be no. Before I move on, I want to address a few questions that you might have. Jesus tells us not to swear an oath at all. Does this mean that I shouldn't testify in the court? When I get married, that I shouldn't make a vow. Uh, our modern economy revolves around making promises and signing documents. And uh, some Amish people and Anabaptists don't sign documents because they view that as swearing. Is that what we are supposed to do? Well, I don't think that Jesus' point is to prohibit all swearing. And remember, Jesus is about deeper meaning, deeper intentions, more than superficial obedience to the letters of the law. This was about pursuing integrity, meaning what we say and doing what we said. To focus on the question of when we're allowed or not allowed uh, is, I think, being pharisaical, the very thing that we should try to avoid. But, and I also don't think that this means absolute prohibition because God himself swears. In the Old Testament, he swears by himself. In the New Testament, when Jesus is pressed, he himself swears. Later on in Matthew chapter 26, when the high priest says, uh, ask, will you vow, will you make the vow that you are the Messiah, Jesus says he was, that he will see him coming back in the clouds of heaven. So sure, while we live in this world, the world will assume that we are sinners, that we will lie. 
that we will not be truthful and we will need then to sign a few documents and at times swear at the court, at a wedding, signing a contract. But that is an accommodation, once again, because we live in the sinful world. And by our integrity, by the way that we live, we are actually to show the world that there is a different world coming. Because what we mean, because, what we, because we're, we're pursuing integrity at all times, we are to show that there is no such need, there will be no such need in the future. When the citizens of the kingdom of God live in this perfect kingdom of God, that there is no need to swear. There is no need to make promises. There is no need to uh, um, sign these documents because everyone will say what they mean and do what they say. Friends, when it comes to any of these issues, lying, divorce, I hope as we go through the series of Sermon on the Mount that there is no self-righteousness. So far, Jesus talked about anger as murder, lust as adultery. He has told us to live in absolute integrity, that swearing should seem unnecessary. Under those standards, how many of us can honestly hold our heads up high? We've all killed by this standard. We've all committed adultery and have taken the Lord's name in vain. And as for divorce, I know that this is uh, an area I think a lot of married couples get self-righteous about because it's sort of clear-cut. Some people are divorced and some people are not. And you might also struggle with this issue particularly because you might actually be the one who walked away, who might have committed adultery. Friends, I'm so glad that we're here as family of sinners in Shatin Church. The call to God's kingdom is repent. That's the call that we obeyed as we listened to Christ. And that's what brings us together, not our righteousness, but our recognition of our sins, that our commitment, uh, our commitment to repent and continue to follow and turn to Christ. And we will heed that call until we die. We'll need to continue to repent as we've done this morning. And it's amazing what God does to people whom he calls and people who repent. One of the most famous kings in the Old Testament was King David. King David started his marriage with Bathsheba in the most awful way. King David slept with another man's wife. He committed adultery because he wanted to take her as one of his concubines and he had Bathsheba's husband killed. His marriage started deep in sin. But when he repented, God cleansed that marriage. He blessed it so much so that out of that marriage came one of the greatest kings, Solomon. And out of that line came our Lord Jesus Christ. Divorce, lies, and lusts, adultery, anger, murder, none of it is unforgivable. So continue to come to Christ. And as you come to him, I hope you'll remember that God married us in Christ, that we're one with him. God has made us one with him through Christ, and he will never divorce us. He will never leave us. 
Paul writes in Romans 8, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And those words are trustworthy. We know that we can depend on those words because these are God's words. These are his promises. And we know that he will never, ever break them. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our marriages to you. Lord, we repent of our sins in our marriage, of our selfishness, of our anger, of our adultery, of our lust. Lord, we pray that we'll be reminded of what you have done, that you have made us, as we got married, one to our spouses. Help us to pursue unity. Help us to pursue oneness that we might shine as your light in this world. And Lord, help us also to make, pursue integrity, that we will never say words that we don't mean, that we don't have any intention of carrying out. Help us never to lie. Help us to be of such people of integrity that people will know that there is another world coming where all will live in honesty and all will live in integrity. Lord, help us to shine because of our honesty and our integrity. But Lord, we also know that we will fail. And so Lord, help us to be reminded of your amazing grace. That no matter what we do, that you will always be one with us through your son. And we may continue to come to you in grace and in your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All the things that we are, uh, we've heard and we will hear through the Sermon on the Mount is basically just building our lives upon Jesus' words, his life. And so we're going to sing of it, um, how we will build our lives um, on the cornerstone of Jesus. Uh, this is also our offering song. If you're visiting uh, with us, don't feel obliged to give anything at all. We're just really happy that you're here. This is for the church family. Please stand. And as we offer our gifts, let's sing 